I didn't love everything about yoga classes when I started practicing. Something that happened a lot that truly bordered on trauma for me was my experience of any kind of forward bend. My hamstrings, I was told repeatedly, were tight, whatever the hell that means. And for that reason, when sitting in a forward bend, I would be made to sit way up on a pile of blankets and use a long strap instead of grabbing my feet like everybody else was. If I tried to sneak into a forward bend without using these torture devices, teachers would come sprinting willfully across the room at me, determined to get me to do it their way. And I appreciated their passion and commitment, but 10 years later, after doing it their way all that time, I was still as stiff as I was on day one. So when I first started to practice on my own, I made it a personal project to figure it out and change it. This episode is about the method that I used to move past that and that I've been teaching for a long time now and teaching other people how to teach. And it can be applied to any pose with a range of depths. In addition to being ineffective the way that I started, there were some other weaknesses in that approach. It got me to stay stuck in the identity as a problematically stiff person, something I actually had no inkling of until I went to a yoga class. Thanks for that, yoga teachers, and, and that cultivated a desire for me to be different from how I was. The way it was dealt with in class, doing something different from the other supposedly good yoga practitioners in the room, made me feel like I wasn't doing the practice. It felt that something was being taken away from me. Something was being withheld from me because I wasn't ready. All of these thoughts and feelings got in the way of me being present in that moment. And those straps and blankets never did make me ready. They did nothing to change the strength, openness, and skill in my body that would be necessary to change my range of motion. It was so upsetting to see a live yoga teacher plop their torso down onto their thighs and invite us all to melt into a yummy forward bend. It was not yummy for me. It was awful. It took me years to learn that the problem wasn't with my body. The problem was that these teachers never had to learn how to do a forward bend, and they never learned how to teach one. And this isn't a joke, it's serious. This process I'm gonna tell you about isn't there so that people can get more bendy. Sure, it's about teaching a process that initiates physical change where needed, but more importantly, it's about a process where the practitioner does yoga by observing and embracing the profundity of the present moment and intelligently working with what is presented there to make beneficial change one baby step at a time. It's about being with what is, while sometimes challenging limitations, understanding that although things are perfect the way they are, the way they are would benefit from some progress, that work is inherent in the human experience. This is about how to work with now. Welcome to the My Yoga Practice Podcast. I'm James Brown. I've been teaching yoga practice and how to teach it to people all over the world for over 20 years. In this podcast series, I intend to share with you the most important things about teaching that I've learned along the way. Yoga practice is to be tailored to the individual, yet it tends to be taught in a one-size-fits-all approach to people with different needs and abilities. In this series, learn specific teaching strategies that allow each student in your classes to make the practice their own. Recall from the last episode the mention of what I call the tapas point. 
The tapas point is when coming into a pose, the point of depth where limitations in range of motion, strength, or skill prevent one from going more deeply without losing the alignment or other quality of work that you have determined to be in line with your chosen desired outcome. The four-stage process that's outlined in this episode, when employed effectively, can take each practitioner into and out of the most ideal depth for them on that day if the desired outcome for that pose is to work at the tapas point. So also recall from that episode the assertion that we don't always have to work this way. But if you are, I'm going to tell you about the way that I do it. There are serious problems that come with telling somebody to back off away from what the others are doing. This approach of finding and working at the tapas point starts everybody in the same place, then takes them each to that place that may be different for everybody where the best work happens. In the last episode of this podcast, the two almost universally desirable outcomes that were introduced were focusing the mind and working at the tapas point. This approach is about doing them both. This approach keeps the practitioner in the present, doing beneficial work that requires attention, and is interesting enough to get that attention. So the body gets to work well while the mind gets to focus on what is at hand instead of having some other painful inner dialogue, saying perhaps, I want to go further, I am tight, is anybody watching, am I advanced, am I a beginner, am I this level or that level, am I good? the way I am. In those cases, the person is listening to what they already thought of themselves before they came into class. Instead, with this approach, teach to observe what is happening in each moment and give objectively observable criteria about each moment that instructs your students how far to go. It is often said that no two poses are alike, and it's true. One of the ways that one asana can be different for different people is its depth or range of motion. For example, one person in a forward bend has more hip flexion than another person in the same asana. Because these two people are going to be in all of the lead yoga classes that ever happen, teachers teach more effective yoga practice if they can clearly articulate to each student the depth to which they should go on that day. On a more individual level, each of us has a different practice each time we roll out our mats. One's physical abilities change from practice to practice, and trying to figure out why can drive you crazy. When we employ this clear process that I'll go through here, we objectively determine how deeply to go, and we're required to be observant of the now, which makes it a yoga practice as defined by Patanjali. And that leaves little room to listen to the internal chatter that comes with the mental baggage that each of us has about our own physical limitations and abilities. This episode is about the process of getting the body into and out of asanas in a way that maximizes their benefit and minimizes risk. It happens in four stages. Stage one is pre-alignment. That is, in the pose before the pose, we align the things that will not change as we move into the pose. Pre-aligning movement is about aligning and stabilizing those components of an asana which happen in the setup 
the pose before the asana, in the transition into the asana, and in the asana itself. These are the things that won't change. Stage two is prioritizing that stability and moving with alignment. So while moving into the pose, prioritize those things that were pre-aligned over those things that are moving. The still parts are more important than the moving parts. Stage three is stopping at the tapas point and working at the tapas point while in the pose. So in the pose, become more skilled at the actions that stabilize the pre-aligned parts and prioritize them while you explore deepening the movement aspects of the pose only as far as the pre-aligned parts stay stable. And in stage four, we come out of the pose, maintaining stability in the pre-aligned parts until you are completely out of the pose. Practicing this process takes the body to the precise depth of movement that is needed. Movement, as you know, is either limited by strength, flexibility, or knowledge and skill. But many times we don't know which factor it is that is limiting deeper versions of a pose. When we use this process, we do not need to know what the limitation is. That saves a lot of wasted time, effort, and energy. Let's take a closer look at step one, pre-aligning movement. Pre-alignment is when, in the pose before the pose, you align those things which must not change as you move into the pose and in the pose itself. There are physical benefits to this. Let's take the example of Uttanasana, the standing forward bend. You can see images of the pose before the pose and the pose itself on the episode page of our website. In the picture on the left, the preparation, she is pre-aligning the movement into the pose pictured on the right. Pre-aligning the movement from the pre-alignment pose on the left into the final pose on the right would mean that we'd emphasize maintaining straight legs and the effort of thoracic extension, that is moving the upper spine in toward the chest. We're doing that work. She does this with the chest lifted as high as possible and with the legs straight, and in this case with the hands on the floor. Now, before we go on, a word about using blocks and other props in situations like this. There'll be an entire episode about this later, but for now, since the desired outcome for this setup is thoracic extension and straight legs, many students will place the hands on blocks rather than the floor to make that happen. One effective way to teach this is to have everybody get blocks set up before the pose, and that everybody starts with their hands on blocks, then they're only removed if those two important realignment points are maintained. That is the upper back moving in toward the chest and the legs being straight. That way the blocks are integrated into the practice rather than being something that less flexible people have to add. Instead of saying, if you're flexible, get blocks, we put everybody on blocks teach the actions that everybody can do with blocks, then only get rid of the blocks if those actions still happen. Trust me, when you use props in this way, people are less likely to see them as a handicap, less likely to go into that mental chatter about their skill level, and more likely to stay focused, which is what makes it a yoga practice. 
So blocks or no blocks, in our pre-alignment pose, we emphasize maintaining straight legs and the effort of thoracic extension. Those are most readily accessible with the chest lifted as high as possible, which means that the elbows will be straight. This works well as an entry point for standing forward bend because all of the components of standing forward bend can be taught here. Then only once those are well established we'd go to step two which is folding at the hips only as far as those pre-alignment points can be maintained. So again pre-alignment is when in the pose before the pose you align those things which must not change as you move into the pose and in the pose itself. When a teacher does this skillfully, they identify and teach elements before movement that will carry through the movement into the next body shape. Typically, these elements are ones that are easier to do, understand, and feel in the pre-pose than they are in the movement and or the landing pose. When a teacher does this but it needs improvement, that means elements are mentioned but not explained clearly, or it's not made clear that the element is to be part of the movement to come. And if the landing pose is misaligned in a way that could have been prevented and there was no attempt to address it in the pre-pose, that means pre-alignment was absent when needed. Step two of this four-part process is about the process of coming into the pose. It has two important elements, so we will look at them separately. The first is prioritizing stability in the movement, and the other is for that movement to happen with optimal alignment. Once we have established in the pre-alignment pose which things are going to be held stable during movement, we prepare the student to prioritize stability of those things before and during movement into the pose. In this case, the forward bend, those things which are to remain stable before, during, and in the pose itself are straight legs and effort of thoracic extension. This is effective in a very practical way because it informs how far to come into a pose. In this example, emphasizing straight knees and thoracic extension, we can tell the students to fold only as far as those things keep happening. What this does physically is that it concentrates much of the physical effectiveness of the pose at the place in the body that may be challenged to open or to strengthen for each practitioner. And why does this matter? Well, the deeper the experience of stability is, the more intelligently the movement is informed. This mirrors precisely what is stated in the Yoga Sutras about the human need for stability in the moving mind. In the sutras, practice is defined as an attempt to stabilize the mind. Here we are using focus on the stable factors of the body as the means to that end. The desired outcome here is physical and mental stability, also known as yoga practice. When a teacher does this skillfully, it is made clear to the student that the still parts of the transition and of the pose itself take priority over the moving parts of the pose. When a teacher does this but it needs improvement, stability is taught but not emphasized, or it's taught at the wrong time, like during the movement or after it. Do it before the movement. And when movement is taught without instruction about stability, this important step in this important process is absent but very much needed if the desired outcomes are to focus the mind and work at the tapas point.
The second crucial element of the movement, in addition to prioritizing the stability that happens during the movement, is the alignment of the movement itself. Let's use a couple of different examples to discuss this. They too are pictured on this episode's webpage on the website. The first is called Ordvahasta in Tadasana, which means hands up in mountain pose. Simply described, it's standing with the whole body neutral, except that the arms are stretched up overhead. It happens in the first movement of a common form of sun salute, where on an inhale, the arms reach out to the side and up to touch above the head. Optimal alignment in this hypothetical teaching situation for the final pose would be straight arms and no lower back bend. Most people cannot do this at first, so they only go as far as they can go with straight elbows and a neutral spine. For most people that are new to classes, it looks more like the pose pictured in the middle on the website where the arms are up but the hands are not touching each other. What is crucial to understand and teach is that this middle pose, where the hands aren't touching, is not a modification or a variation of the pose. It is not the easy version. It is the pose. This is the work. In this case, the teacher would emphasize that the arms circle out to the sides and up only as far as the elbows stay straight and the low back does not arch. All of this can happen whether or not the hands touch. But by stopping there and working, the limitations that prevent touching the hands, if they're not touching, are addressed. Let's look at another example, Warrior Two or Virabhadrasana Two, to learn more about moving with skillful alignment. One good way to pre-align this pose would be to have the student do all of the elements of it except bending the front knee. So everything else is happening. They'd be in the pose pictured except with the front leg straight. Before bending the knee, we would pre-align the things that won't change, like the back leg straight, the sit bones equally distant from the floor, the torso turned to face, in this case the camera, and the front leg turned out to be perpendicular to the direction that the chest is facing, so 90 degrees out from the way the chest is facing. In this case, it would be directly to our right looking at the picture. Now moving with alignment would mean that as the knee bends to come into the pose, the foot, knee, and hip would all stay in the same plane with each other. Without that emphasis, the knee would drop in closer to us in this view, and the hip would jut out away from us in this view. Instead of allowing that misalignment to happen, explain it before the movement and watch that it happens during and after the movement. Place yourself as the teacher in the room before this happens so that you can see whether it's happening properly or not. In this case, to see what I'm talking about, you would need to be in front of the student's knee. Now, when this is done skillfully, the movement itself is instructed carefully. For example, coming into Warrior Two, teaching to bend the knee toward the center of the foot. When coming into Ordvahasta and Tadasana, that's reaching the arms up to the ceiling, teaching during the movement to keep the elbows straight and the low back neutral. When this is done but it needs improvement, instructions about movement are mentioned, but they're not clear or they're delivered at the wrong time. Somehow the movement is not intelligent due to a lack of clear instruction. And when this is absent when needed, movement is not instructed, and that happens unfortunately a lot. What it looks like in practice is that the teacher names one pose, then says, okay, let's come into this other pose. They're not teaching, they are reciting a list of poses. Please don't be that teacher. 
Now we're moving into the pose, but where do we stop? That is what step three is about, stopping at and working at the tapas point. Let's go back to the example of the forward bend. If a student's range of motion is limited by muscle elasticity, they'll stop folding when the length of the hip extensors makes folding further with straight legs painful, harmful, or impossible. The hip extensors, which attach at the back of the femur or tibia and the back of the pelvis, in that case are limiting the amount of fold available at the hip. When the student stops at that endpoint, they can work precisely at that place to further open the hip extensors. If, when that point of limitation is reached, the fold moves into the knees by bending them, or the spine by rounding the upper back more, the potential transformation in the hip is reduced or eliminated. We also pre-aligned by establishing the strong effort of thoracic extension. If the student has a weak upper back and they know to only fold as far as the knees stay straight and the thoracic spine continues with the effort of extension, they'll likely be limited in folding from the hips by the strength of the upper back, which is where the extensors of the thoracic are. As they fold more deeply from the hips, resistance from the hamstrings increases, just like in the above example about flexibility. But this student, because of the weaker upper back, will work to stay calm and focused as the muscles of the upper back work to stabilize the upper spine in the pre-alignment that was taught in the pre-pose. If the same student kept moving, even after the thoracic started to go into so much flexion that the effort of extension is unachievable, which appears as a very rounded upper back, they'd lose the opportunity to develop important strength. So in those two examples, the first is about less flexibility in the hamstrings. The second is about less strength in the upper back. We address both of those working in this way. Once you've brought the body to its tapas point, we work in the pose. Use the time in the pose to become more skilled at the actions that stabilize the pre-aligned parts, and while prioritizing them, explore deepening the movement aspect of the pose only as far as the pre-aligned parts stay stable. In the forward bend, that means holding the legs still and the upper spine working extension as the hips might possibly bend more. In the position with the arms overhead, that means holding the lower spine neutral and the elbows straight while bringing the hands closer together and lengthening the spine upwards. So this process of pre-aligning, prioritizing stability and moving with alignment and stopping at the tapas point in very different student bodies has helped each of them know how far to go and they've both gone to a place where they will do some very good work. With the same set of instructions, you've taught each person in the class, different people, how to customize their physical practice in the same pose so that the work is work that works best for them, even though it's different for each of them. This process helps make your instructions universally useful to all your students. It takes the modern practice of group asana classes and infuses them with tools that allow each individual to have insight into their own body. Remember in that first movement of a common form of sun salute, the arms reached out to the sides and up to perhaps touch above the head, and that optimal alignment in that situation for the final pose would be straight arms with no lower back bend, and that most people can't do this at first, that you only go as far as you can with straight elbows and a neutral spine. 
This brings up an important thing to understand in this methodology. The two main kinds of physical limitation that prevent an injury-free joint from going to its full range of motion are weakness and inflexibility. A third type of limitation, though, is about knowledge or skill. In the case of the person who can't bring their hands together overhead with straight elbows and neutral low back, it could be either strength in certain muscles or inflexibility in some, or they might not know or be able to feel if their low back or elbows are bending, or if it's a combination of two or three of those limiting factors. One wonderful thing about knowing how to work at the tapas point is that whether the limitation is flexibility, strength, knowledge and skill, or a combination, it is addressed because you're working at the current end range of functionality no matter why that end range is where it is. Fixing whatever the limitation is here in simpler poses is how we teach more challenging things like backbends and inversions where this same range of motion, openness, and understanding is needed. When working with the tapas point, you are often doing the same kind of work in very easy and basic poses as you do in harder and more complex ones. With this teaching technique, you are teaching the more advanced poses in the simpler poses so that these fundamental elements of all poses are understood and mastered before we get into riskier, less attainable versions of them. So when this is done skillfully, each student moves into a shape, stopping moving when the stable parts would have to become unstable to go further, or when they have reached the maximum depth available in that asana, which is rare. When this is done but it needs improvement, there is some instruction about where to stop, but it's not delivered in a way that is individualized, or it is not clear, or it is delivered too late. If the student is not going to their tapas point cognizant of what that means and where it is, this needs improvement. And this is absent when needed if students are either not told how to know where to stop at all, or they are given instructions that are not individualized. For example, coming into that forward bend if the students are told to fold and press their heads as close to their legs as possible, or if they are simply told to fold, the tapas point is not being taught. And finally, the fourth and final step is teaching how to come out of the pose. Taking such care, setting up a pose, bringing your students into a pose to their precise tapas point where limitations are addressed and having them work in a pose, addressing those limitations is all vitally important. But the story doesn't end there. Teach how to come out of the pose with the same precision that you prepared them and brought them into the pose. Physically, injuries can and do happen coming out of poses. Mentally, maintaining focus while coming out of the pose keeps the student in their practice and minimizes a common tendency in modern asana to see practice as a list of poses. Teach that practice continues beyond and between the series of shapes that we put the body into. So when this is done skillfully, students are reminded of the fundamental efforts and alignment that's necessary to make the transition out of the pose safe and effective. The teaching conveys that the practice is still happening and that there are still important points of focus. Typically, these points of focus are the same ones that were emphasized before the pose, in the transition into the pose, and in the pose itself. When this is done but it needs improvement, there is some instruction about how to come out of the pose, but the important efforts and points of focus are not as fully developed as needed to make the transition safe and effective. 
and this is absent when needed if there is little or no detail given about how to come out of the pose. This process that enhances the physical benefits of asana similarly enhances the inner mental benefit of asana. When we teach with clarity to go only to a certain point in the body, to that place where the pre-alignment meets a challenge, there is only one way for a student to do it. They have to pay attention. They must focus on the thing so that they know where it is and what to do about it. And that is what makes the physical practice a mental practice of yoga. Our students will come to us with an infinite amount of reasons for being in a yoga class. If we're teaching the yoga practice of Patanjali, we teach, even if it's hidden in poses, how to focus. This is how this approach to the physical practice is an authentic and effective way to experience the full expression of yoga. We take the wants and needs of the students to do fancy poses, to sweat, to meet people, whatever, and we deliver it to them in a package that requires their buy-in. And that buy-in happens when they start to get it. In order to get that handstand or the float back to Chaturanga, they need to pay attention to these efforts and actions in the body. Then they get their Chaturanga or not, and you get to teach focus. And if all goes well, at the end, everybody is a little happier than before. These teaching tools work together before and during movement so that the practice is safe and effective physically, and so that the physical practice satisfies the definition of mental practice, abhyasa, and asana, as stated in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. You can see pictures of poses that were mentioned in this podcast and a summary of the four steps in this process of working with the tapas point on the podcast page at myyogapractice.com. There you can also access resources for teachers and practitioners of modern postural yoga, including over a hundred video lessons that exist to help teachers teach yoga better. And you can also learn about and book private long distance mentorship sessions for teachers with me. Please rate, review, subscribe to, and share the My Yoga Practice podcast. Thank you for listening.